ready to hear. Hey guys, today we have Dusty Jones here.、Um, he and I've been talking about getting this together for a long time. So, Dusty, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how did you get in the ABA field?、Uh, well, I was、uh, I'm a behavior analyst. I live in Maine, and I've been doing this for 14 years. I got into the ABA field kind of in a strange way.、Uh, I, I failed a class, my intro to behavior analysis class, because I grew up in the town where、uh, I went. I ended up going to school. It was the University of North Texas in Denton, and、uh, I grew up there. And so it was just by a, a series of accidents that I ended up going to school there.、Um, and a friend of mine was teaching a class. He was teaching the intro to behavior analysis class. And when I went there, it was such, it was something that was so Different than anything I'd experienced before. That、um, I failed the class, and、uh, I I didn't really have a lot of direction then either. I was just freshly out of high school, so I failed a couple other classes, and so through another series of accidents, I ended up in the military. So I spent six years in the Navy, and when I got out, I wanted to go back to school and get my bachelor's degree. And part of that,、uh, one of the the goals I had was to replace that failing grade in the behavior analysis course. So I had to go take that course again. And my professor that time was、uh, Dr. Janet Ellis, and she was a, quite an interesting person. And after six years in the Navy, I kind of understood a little bit better what behavior analysis was getting at. So I ended up going from an a, an original interest in And studying history to sociology, and then after taking that class, I decided to major in it as a bachelor's degree or as an undergraduate.、Um, the program is an applied behavior analysis course or、uh, program, and then I went back for、uh, graduate school a few years later and just studied basic behavior analysis. Wow! So, well, first, thank you for your service, <laughs> and then. I don't know. Failing a class, I think I failed my first ABA class too. But <laughs> so well, one of the well, since you like history, I need to say that one of the first thing I do in the morning, ninety nine percent of the time, I will go on history dot com and see today on today in history. That's one of my things to do. Like if I don't do it, I don't get my cup of coffee. Yeah, that day's not gonna turn out right. That's my little routine. So. <laughs> What is your Skinnerian message or a quote that's ABA related or ABA inspired?、Uh, Skinnerian message or quote? I guess I guess I guess I made a, make a practice out of his、uh, quote about experimenting, just kind of living in an experimental fashion. And、uh, then he said something about when something catches your interest, to follow that interest at that at that time. And、uh, that one works out to be a good excuse to. Chase rabbits and tangents and stuff. <laughs> well, it's always good to work your EO. I wish I knew that earlier. Just no one actually explained that to me, and I might have said it to someone before. I actually failed my motivation class. Well, actually, I dropped out of that class, a graduate course, because I just wasn't motivated to <laughs> <laughs> to learn the motivation course. So yeah, I wish I could work that EO at that time. Maybe things would. Turned out a little different, but、uh, <laughs> it is what it is. I just maybe I was too young or too unmotivated to learn. But、hmm. anyways,、um, yeah. Well, actually, I kind of recently I read an article. I can't remember the author, but it was a 2007 article talking about Skinner as a pessimist at, at the end of his life. That what he had.、Uh, Ended up deciding toward the end was that what what we learned about humans through behavioral science led to the conclusion that we were doomed, and the article was asking or saying that our new mission was to prove Skinner wrong. <laughs> so, well, I need to look for that article. Let me find a pencil and start writing. That one's been on my mind for the last few days since I read it. Ah,、oh, scary. Two <laughs> thousand Skinner. 
Interesting. Got to look it up. Um, when and why did you decide to get your BCBA? Or what I call become a Jedi. And do you remember the day you got your BCBA? For me, it's mostly a practical thing. I, I'd rather stay in a, a situation where I can do research and, and stuff. But I got married young and started having kids young. And I've got three teenage children who I love dearly and who are wonderful. And I've uh, been something I've kind of invested a lot of my effort and time into. And that's kind of required me to make those dis those career decisions. So I've had to look for whatever ways that I could grow with them, being able to finance growing teenage kids and so on. Let's see, I became, I, I took my test in uh, Arizona. I went to some building in Arizona and I took the test and I don't know, I, it was, I guess it was probably just a relief to have it over. It was interesting to do it on the computer. When I did it for the BCABA, it was a big room full of people, on, and we, we wrote on paper. So it was a switch. Wow. So you, you're everywhere, Texas, Arizona, and now in Maine. Yeah. Wow. I think my oldest son um, claims 26 times he's moved he's in his 16 years. You think he's about right? I, oh, yeah. Well, I'm just saying he's that's that's what he's counted up so far. Jeez. <laughs> so where are you going next? Where are you going next? Are you going to stay put in Maine for a little bit? No, I'm going to stay here. I like Maine. It's so strange to think like the you know New England weather and you know Texas weather is just like so different, and you like it there. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on. Can you trace your ABA lineage? So you start in. University of North Texas. So can you trace, I don't know, your ABA bloodline, so to speak? All right, is this the one that goes back to Skinner? If you could go back to Skinner, that would be good. <laughs> I mean, you were in Arizona at one point, so you never know. Yeah, I don't know how much the, the folks that I work with reach Skinner. I know I hired a woman once um, who had taken a class from him, and then I didn't end up actually following through with hiring her and she sued us and sued the company and oh, yes. there was a settlement it was ridiculous but oh, yes. um, no let's see my lineage um, the professors I had at UNT uh, have quite a quite a nice lineage themselves um, Rick Smith one of my main professors and he studied under Iwata at the University of Florida uh, primarily and learned a lot about functional analysis and how to conduct those and deal with challenging behavior and self-injurious behavior and so on. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. Uh, Dr. Glenn, she was my advisor in graduate school for my thesis. She was a student of Don Whaley, who was a, an old cohort of um, Dick Malott and I believe a, maybe a Joel Greenspoon. And they were they were part of the the group that originated that de the department at the University of North Texas. Jesus Gonzalez, I would say, introduced me for the most part to Israel Gold Diamond and uh, Paul Andronis and TV Joe Lang and, and their kind of area of the field. And th those those would be the folks that I would say have most informed my work, I guess, in, ter in terms of just sort of the the way I've applied behavior analysis. That's a long list. <laughs> well, it's a it's it's a pretty neat list. UNT is a pretty great program. They they put together. I should probably add uh, Manish Vedia because uh, I I tend to focus a lot on the cultural aspect of of whatever it is I'm looking at, and that that comes a lot from what I learned from Manish Vedia, who's informed in his studies at the University of Florida by an anthropologist named Mar Marvin Harris. And a lot of behavior analysts will be familiar with uh, Marvin Harris. Dr. Glenn wrote some articles with him and some others in the field uh, did some work with him because his, his approach to anthropology is very similar to our approach to individual behavior. Oh, I need to look it up. Yeah, I got this name here. Wow. You are everywhere, and you met a lot of heavy, heavy, heavy hitters. Then, since you've been, you say you've been here, you've been in the field for more than fourteen years. So, what was your biggest failure as 
a BCBA or someone working in the field? Well, I, I would say there have been times that I have kind of cried out to my former professors just uh, in frustration. When I was first getting into the field, I remember asking my mentor. Um, I was kind of getting close to the end of my undergraduate studies. And I, I asked him, so, oh, by the way, where do, where, where do I get a job with this degree? And we talked a lot about that, but his, the bulk of his answer was that I would end up having to sell behavior analysis kind of at the same time that I was trying to sell myself to an employer. At the time, you know, like Texas has become a pretty good place for behavior analysis recently, but it was not when I was graduating then. So the idea there was kind of, well, we had to go tell people what behavior analysis was and why it was val valuable and why they should consider us for the jobs that they had open. So I looked at all kinds of different things doing that. Fortunately, I ended up in a program in Florida at the outset, so I didn't have to do that originally. But I ended up in situations where people were looking to establish behavior analysis programs a lot. There was one that I worked in in New Mexico where, uh, well, I guess I was, my job there was supposed to, to like bring it back to a behavior analysis kind of framework. It had started with, you know, guys like T Todd Risley and Bear, uh, Don Bear helped to, to put this place together. And one of their old cold cohorts, Dave Giles, was, is still running it. And so it had started off as one of the places that um, were kind of the, the original sites where some of the research on conducting group homes and child welfare kind of applications were done. And, I, and, in the, over, and so I was kind of bringing back, me and another guy were hired to, to go there and bring back sort of the, the behavioral programs that were more in, in line with what Risley had, had done. Um, same company in Arizona worked with both of those places. And so I went to England kind of really fresh um, in a company over there that was putting together a behavioral program. So that's kind of been my goal. And, and when you do it, like, I mean, that's kind of been the, my mission in a lot of the jobs I've had. And when that's your mission, you, you kind of have to go all the way to the top of the structure. And, and that's where you find a lot of people with a lot of different motivations than helping people. Uh, with behavioral problems or learning problems or emotional whatever, those are folks that are dealing with budgets and and uh, public relations issues and all kinds of things. And they have business degrees or marketing degrees, or uh, they come from different professions, and it just kind of gets very complex. And uh, so I've cried out to my former professors in times and said, you know, how come I can't get anybody to to get with the program here and one of the, the things that my that Dr. Glenn said to me in an email once that really kind of uh, put it in perspective for me. She said that it took a, a long time for the world to get the way it is, and so you shouldn't expect to change it overnight. And uh, the other statement there from, from that email was that she said that when people uh, hire a behavior analyst, they're often hiring somebody. They don't really know what they're hiring. They don't know what that is. They're looking for someone called a behavior analyst who can work some miracles without changing the status quo. That would be, I guess, the, when I say, when I'm, when I think of the failure, the failure to change the structures that have kind of, when I was working in England, I kind of hit myself in the head one day and said, oh my God, some of these things are centuries old. Some of these um, behavioral lineages that have brought people to, you know, understanding child welfare this way or so. Some of these come from hundreds of years of tradition here. So, uh, how do you get out of that situation? I guess in that case, I'm looking at your script here, and the next question is, what is my biggest success? Mm -hmm. If you ask me that question, I always think of one kid over there in, in England, um, and I guess I can't tell you his name. I, I don't really like this confidentiality nonsense. I wish we'd have more acceptance in society so that confidentiality wasn't so much of a veil over real people, but... Uh, this young man engaged in some outrageous SIB for the most most of his life. If you looked at him, you could see the wounds that, that he wore constantly as it was his appearance of what he normally looked like. I would walk with him sometimes from, you know, like a vocational center to get on a bus. And in the process of switching his backpack from one shoulder to the other shoulder, 
you would have to stop and engage in several repetitions of SIB in the various forms, just sort of as a, you know, it's like just part of the process of walking. You put, you know, one foot in front of the other, hit yourself on the head, and it's just, he he was so affected by autism, and so, uh, and had been engaging in this SIB for so long that it became an extremely generalized response. And when we started counting it, he was doing it thousands of times, thousands of times a day. One of the first questions I asked was to my clinical director. I said, are we use, allowed to use electric shock here? I've heard of something called a Cybus helmet. And he said, no, of course not. <laughs> and I said, I know. I just had to ask. And then we just kind of got to work figuring the kid out. We counted all those those instances of SIB gave the staff counters, clickers, and uh, put it on a scatter plot. We started seeing that the most or the the highest rate time was during eating, and he had uh, he had a very difficult time eating. So we, as a, the first intervention that we did was to give him all of his food in a in a container that was a it was a two compartment container with a lid on top, like a um, Tupperware thing. And every hour, we had the kitchen, the cafeteria, prepare these meals for him. They took the amount of food that he would get over the course of the day and broke it up into 16 portions, and he'd put them in these boxes. And so then every hour at the same time of the hour, we'd take him from wherever he was to to the cafeteria, and we would go through this routine of eating out of these boxes his food, and they'd put all different varieties in it. But what he quickly learned to do was to manage that box so that he could feed himself with all of the trouble that he normally had trying to eat with from a plate with forks and spoons. And when we did that, all of the SIB that was associated with eating very quickly went away. And so we dropped it by hundreds of instances per day. And when we did that, we were able to move the scale uh, on the axis up and then start seeing more variability at that level. So the next thing that we started understanding was how restrictive staff were with him through his day. He was so engaged in all this SIB that he was mostly catatonic. And so they had developed this habit of caring for him, doing everything for him. And so he had no freedom whatsoever to move around on his own. And so the next thing that we started doing was to work with the staff and teach them whatever he's trying to do let him do it and help him because this is the only way we're going to figure out what this kid is capable of and what he might be interested in and so we started doing that for a long time and so we just kind of kept stepping it off every time we we made a little gain and then assessed further and <clears throat> made another gain and assessed further and I, I eventually had to leave England but a few months after I left the behavior analyst that I was working with over there with him told me that he was starting to use words. He was starting to be able to say no when he didn't want something. And before I left, he had learned he was starting to learn to be cheeky, like hide his favorite staff person's keys, <laughs> which for him just meant moving them to another spot and uh, not quite getting the out of sight part. But as he as we got him to stop engaging in so much SIB then the the person that he was got to come out and and that's that's who he was so you literally save his life because you know if you guys didn't break down to his feeding his containers then he might at this very moment he still might be hitting himself or he might be dead already suffer that kind of injury yeah well the age that he was he was getting ready to to hit puberty and get much larger, become an adult-sized boy. So that could be he was, uh, yeah, he was going to be in a in a bad way. It's like you said, kind of confidentiality kind of thing. But do you, by any chance, still have you know uh, anyone tell you what's going on with him? I mean, not so. Well, I I've I've thought about it over the years, and I may again yet because I. I learned so much from from working with him um, that I've been able to apply to other other kids with great success. That um, yeah, it would be worth going back and seeing you know what's the long term effect of the work that we did. 
I mean, I'm just remembering, like, one of the things that we, we had the staff doing that was just, well, we had them measuring his, how, how gassy he was, because we started to suspect that he had a food allergy. And by, by having staff, well, one of our staff people noticed it, and, and by then they were kind of working with us on this. They were like, hey, I think I found something. I think I found that. Um, the real turning point, I guess, for them was one day um, he was in his classroom, and one of the problems that we ha- had to work with them really hard on was let him, letting him leave the classroom when he wanted to. They were in the habit of stopping him at the door and turning him back, and then sitting and watching him pound on himself for a good five, ten minutes, because the previous uh, intervention plans had said to leave him alone and let it, let it, you know, let him be until he's done. What he needed was help most of the time. One of the things that they believed about him is that he didn't, he wouldn't wear more than one layer of, of clothing, and he didn't, like he, he liked it cold. He liked to be cold. So one day he was sitting in his class, and he, he, he was wearing a sweatshirt, and he took his sweatshirt off. They violated our rule, really. They were supposed to let him leave his sweatshirt off, but we hadn't really said in the event that he strips naked, let him be. So they made a judgment call, and I, I agree with their call. They <laughs> made him get dressed, but so they put his sweatshirt back on. Instead of engaging in SIB, he said, you know, fine, whatever. He got up and walked out of the classroom. So they went with him, and he led them on a walk all the way across the school campus through five gates to his apartment. Five gates meaning they have to come and unlock each one of them to his apartment. He went up into his apartment to his upstairs bedroom and got into his dresser. He pulled out a t-shirt. He pulled his sweatshirt off and put his t-shirt on and then led his staff all the way back through all those five gates back to his classroom and sat down. And when he did all that, the staff went, hey, I think this kid can do more than we've thought. <laughs> so they started getting in on it. One of the staff noticed, hey, this kid, uh, he seems to get gassy at times, and it, and it seems to, cor- I seem to click that clicker a lot more often when he is. So we had him start counting it, scatter plotted it, just like the, the other thing. And we discovered that he had a milk intolerance or a milk sensitivity. Um, we tried to get the doctor to, to screen him from, for allergies, but we ran into too much red tape, so we had to do it experimentally. And that's how we did it. So we found that he had a milk intolerance, and we removed that from his diet, and suddenly all of the SIB dropped again. We got a really powerful confirmation of that effect one day when uh, a new staff person fed him something called banoffee pie, which is a very heavily loaded dairy pie dessert. Oy. His SIB spiked that day to almost the original levels. So we, we were able to do a lot and learn a lot from that, that young man. And uh, your next question, what was your the forces with me moment, was, you know, I was when, with him in the, in the playground one day. And uh, the only way that he'd normally let you interact with him is he would hold out his hand and you could tap his hand. And I used to try to get him to turn his hand over and get him to tap my hand as just the beginning way of trying to get him to respond to me and he did eventually warm up to me and he'd start to recognize me and as we got to gaining some success with him I had to turn my attention to the other kids and I didn't get to come see him as much so one day I was in the playground and I saw him and I went over and trying to say hi and interact with him the way I'd done before and he started to recognize me and then he just started he kind of started bouncing and kind of laughing and happy all of a sudden (laughs) And it just made me feel really good. And I went back into the behavior analysis office with this funny look on my face. And they said, what's the matter with you? And I said, I, I think I just made happy. <laughs> funny way of saying it, but that's just kind of how it felt. It must be a good feeling. Well, I just, yeah, I hope he's doing well. You make me want to find out now and uh, make sure. I left him in good hands. That's good. That's good. That's a really, really proud accomplishment. I congratulate you on that. So what is the most important thing a BCBA should learn and master? Uh, well, um, I think schedules of reinforcement are the most important thing. You can uh, you can kind of get bogged down, I guess, in a, in a smaller framework, a, a three-term contingency kind of analysis. We, we do things like ABC assessment tools because we're trying to find out 
we're trying to take a sample of a few instances of behavior and, and say what happens, you know, normally before and after these behaviors occur. But um, it's easy to forget that that's a sample. And what we're actually sampling is behavior that recurs repetitively for this individual over time. And so what we're actually looking at is behavior that, that occurs on some normal rate and, and it's being maintained by reinforcement that occurs on some rate of reinforcement. And that the different schedules of reinforcement associated with these behaviors are what determine how frequent they occur. And I think if you look at that that way, um, challenging behavior doesn't have to be so much um, a thing that can't ever happen or something that has to always be dealt with or responded to. When I, you know, when I worked with parents, they would always have this struggle when their child did something inappropriate that, that something had to be done. Something had to be, you know, addressed. And, you know, as the field widens and, and training becomes more streamlined, that's something that's, that might, you know, that I, I see being lost is sort of an understanding that, that behavior the behavior that people engage in is is something that they've learned to do over a long period of time, and it's something they depend on in order to uh, engage successfully in their world. So, by understanding schedules of reinforcement, strict uh, extinction procedures and things like that don't be, don't aren't as necessary. You can you can conceive of where you can continue to allow problem behavior to access reinforcement on some schedule while you work quickly to build up replacement skills. So I think that would be a, 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 an important cautionary skill to master. And then I think the other one, far and away most, most important, is shaping how to build behavior out of nothing. You know, like w with that kid that I was describing, just tapping on his hand. It was, it was the one thing that I could do with him, the one thing that I could try to get a response out of. Starting there and then just kind of building on that, operationalizing a target behavior and sort of driving a child to that target behavior can create a lot of stress if you haven't very, very carefully uh, task analyzed the steps that he'll need to take to get to what you've decided is the correct topography. I think those are two very important skills. You really make me rethink some of the treatment plan I had done before. So, yeah, I'm going to go back tomorrow morning. I'm going to break down some of my programs and make it a little better, hopefully. Oh, well, it's good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, just some of the things I might have missed. I, I never... I always think that, you know, I got those four letters doesn't mean I should stop learning. There's still so much out there that I should learn. That's why I wanted to interview experienced BCBA like yourself so I can pick your brain and learn something. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for that. Okay. The next question I always think is really bad written. So on the other hand, what's the worst misunderstood, the biggest mistake, the black sheep of ABA procedures? Uh, I think probably the most two, or the two most common I see are uh, one in the application of discrete trial training procedures. Uh, people tend to deliver a block of trials and then deliver some kind of reinforcement for completing the block of trials. They don't, they don't realize often that they're doing this. Um, they think that they are reinforcing correct responses during the block of trials. Um, it's a misunderstanding that I see a lot. Um, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to give the kid 10 successful trials. Uh, so they end up doing a lot of least to most prompting to get the kid to, be, to respond per correctly through each 10 all 10 trials so that they can then deliver the reinforcer. It seems like an obvious mistake, but I see I find that everywhere. I find it all all kinds of places. The misunderstanding there is that every response in a discrete trial training format should be should be reinforced every correct response should be reinforced and generally incorrect responses should be ignored and quickly moved on from. So, um, there's a there's a really cool description of how how that should work in a book by Julie Vargas, Behavior Analysis for Teachers, I think is is what that's called. Julie Vargas is Skinner's daughter. I'm sure you probably know that. But and then the other one is I see a lot the the notion that there are four functions for problem behavior: mm -hmm. um, escape, attention, tangible, and automatic. 
And uh, this is a, probably a, <laughs> a syndrome most common among behavior analysis students once you start getting some practice working with different folks. And I, I mean, that's just kind of a, a guess there. But, but I do see a lot of, you know, like folks talking about the four functions as if those were the only ones. And, and I just, when I read the literature, like Awada's uh, articles on functional analysis, um, there's some clarity there that, you know, that, that a, a problem behavior is either maintained by positive or negative reinforcement. And so, like, negative reinforcement can be in the form of escape from the environment, or it can be in the form of escape from the learning materials, or it can be in the form of escape from all kinds of things. Attention can be a, attention of a very idiosyncratic form. One of the uh, higher functioning girls that I worked with in England, the reinforcer that maintained her aggressive behavior was she would have this preliminary approach to you. And if you flinched, then she would attack you. <laughs> very, very dialed in. Very dialed in. She had this little test. It's like an observing response that she would make. And if then you gave her the SD, which was the flinch, then she would engage in aggression. That was technically attention. But in conducting our functional analyses and functional behavioral assessments, it's, dial it's, it's driving in at those idiosyncratic topographies of behavior that get either positive or negative reinforcement and, and how. And, and then automatic reinforcement, the category of head scratching, we, don't, we can't, you know, our results are inconclusive kind of thing. Really make me think. Rocking my body a little bit now. Uh, <laughs> So what is your must-have ABA book that's not the white book? You just mentioned one book. Um, my, my favorite one has always been Behavior, yeah, Behavior Analysis and Learning by Pearson Chaney. That was a textbook for my first graduate course. And it has, it's, well, it's just loaded. It's, just, it's not strict behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis, not, not you know, like since Bear, Wolf, and Risley type. It's broader, it's JAB, it's uh, um, basic science, respondent conditioning and generalization, and you know, that kind of stuff. I'm going to look it up, and uh, I have a good friend that does the show note that I want to make sure that she'll put that on and people can look into that. I, yeah, I need to check out that book. Like Every time <laughs> I talk to someone, it's just like a book that I never heard of, an article I never heard of. There's mm -hmm. just so much to learn, and wow. Okay, talking about kids, then we can't, we have to talk about their family. So when the parents come to you and tell you about some diet or therapy that's not that do not provide much data, what would you tell them? This well, it's come up came up actually recently, or it comes up from time to time, and uh, that like that Facebook forum. Um, well, it was a sunrise group. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess. For one thing, I, I acknowledge that science has not been a big component in a lot of people's world for you know decades in our country, and a lot of the parents that we're dealing with now have not had strong science educations and backgrounds. Science is recently becoming popular, and you know with the internet and with what people with a science orientation are able to do for society now, that uh, that they can do in a much more transparent way. Um, science is gaining in popularity, but it hasn't always been. So a lot of the f folks that we're, that we're dealing with have found other ways or, or whatever to understand their world. I've often found trying to compete with someone else's worldview doesn't get you very far. Because what you end up doing in, in a conversation over someone's worldview is you end up reinforcing, when you say beliefs, it's what someone says about you know whatever the topic is. Someone believes that there is tank, uh, gas in, their, in the tank of their car. It's something they say to themselves about the condition of that car and, and the status of the gas tank. You know, beliefs, religious beliefs, for example, is something that some, someone says to themselves about what will happen after they die. And it has behavioral function, you know, in a variety of ways for different people. So when you engage someone in a conversation about what they believe in and, and you're trying to present them with an alternative view, you're, you're often at risk of just giving them SDs that evoke the behavior of stating their belief. And when they see you react with, uh, with frustration 
perhaps, then that's the reinforcer. And so you're really just kind of giving them an opportunity to, to beef up their repertoire with respect to their, their, their worldview. So I kind of approach the, the problem from the perspective that the, the people that, that are coming to us are, are behaving organisms as well. And I kind of take a, or I, I guess I'd, I, I put a lot of regard in like the area of our ethical code or our, our disciplinary or whatever the professional conduct code where, you know, it has us understanding the behavioral contingencies that affect the behavior of the people who implement our programs. And these are the parents. And, and so if I can't, if they're not the sort of parent that I can show some some science and data to, then I'd rather come up with an approach that has them just engaging in the correct behaviors, whether they ins- understand it or not. You know, just whatever does that. So when, other, when parents come to me with these other things, if, the, if they don't interfere with what I'm doing, then I'm happy to use them. Like parents often who want to give their kids a sensory diet or a sensory stem time or whatever you call it. If I can arrange that to be a recreational time for the kid, then that's I'm fine with that. That doesn't hurt anything. If they're going to want to do something that might cause harm to the kid, then I would probably ask gently to just take some good behavioral measures so that we can monitor what, what they're hoping to accomplish and see if we really do. And, and that gets, prepares for making maybe better decision ba- or database decisions down the road. Yeah, if you can't if you can't accomplish your outcome, then then try to achieve whatever step you can at, at that point to get you there. When you say that the parents' reactions kind of reminded me of what you just talked about that high functioning girl with autism, mm-hmm. like you give them the flinch and then they'll start to attack and right. they'll get their reinforcement. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, what regardless of our intent to do good, if you know we cannot achieve the outcome, which is to help the family, then you know intent just doesn't matter. We we're science of you know we're we're professional do behaviors and intent. We're not lawyers, you know. No matter what our intents are, it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Similar to that, what if you know your family or your son's, I don't know, friend's mom come to you and suggest you to talk to so and so because you know this boy in you know two blocks away exhibits some kind of behavior, but the parents do not believe that their kid has any kind of disability or autism. What would you tell them? <laughs> I'd probably tell them to come play in my yard. So you can observe. Oh no! No, just just, just hang. If the kids got people in the neighborhood that are kind of looking crossways at them, I I tend to, oh, I guess, stand in front of those kids and say, why don't you guys go back in your house and complain at the TV instead? I don't know. I guess in the in the sense that someone might have a legitimate uh, problem that they could use some help with, I don't find that a neighbor tipping them off to that is really going to be where that information needs to come from. The The situation you're describing when I've seen that happen, it's more because someone's being intolerant. Yeah, I, I just I, there's some kids that live in my neighborhood, and they're they're up and down in front of in the street and in front of my house all the time and playing creative games. My biggest worry for them is that the cars go by too fast. They're weird little kids, and what what kid would would you want to be anything other than weird? True that. <laughs> so I I find more value in telling those folks looking askance at a little one to go, you know, apply that energy somewhere else. So I think these days it's like the media or the public would say some like so many things, try to label the kid, try to do I don't know, try to have early intervention, whether it's ABA or some other things. I'm just thinking that that there's that pressure for you or for the parents to rather have the the label than not. In the vein, in, in doing anything at all until it's too late, because there are a lot of people that think, you know, there's what's the Goldilocks situation here that you know some parents, you know, don't want to do anything, but the other just do too much. How do we find out that the child? truly has a need for early intervention? Because some people would say like Einstein didn't speak until he's five, mm-hmm. but you know. These days, if you tell if if someone told you that you know this kid didn't speak a word at all at four, and then everyone would be freaking out. And how would you com- communicate with the, the needs or the, to talk to the parents? Well, that's a good question. 
I guess part of that makes me think of ADHD. There's just, I've, I've never liked that diagnosis. I, I think ADHD, well, I've, I've heard people say that ADHD wouldn't ex- exist without school. I think ADHD is a, is a make-believe diagnosis. It's, it's someone who, who does well when stimuli are coming fast and he's able to respond quickly. You know, given the environment you're, you're operating in, that could be a, a valuable asset. To how you operate. I think kids with ADHD or so-called ADHD do quite well when it comes to playing video games. I'm pretty good at that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some a lot of times when when just people around are saying, "Hey, you you should look into that," it's just because they're irritated with something. They don't like something about the kid's behavior. And well, the other thing about ADHD is I don't know. Recently, one of the folks that originated that diagnosis has has said after his career, he's decided that it's bogus. And and I'm like, well, yeah, I agree with that. And and it seems to be something that is catching on in the mental health world. Recently, the other day, I saw an article that there's this new diagnosis, an attention deficit diagnosis. And it's just like the drug companies are saying, you know, it's okay, folks, even though we've, you know, figured out that ADHD is bullshit, we've got the drug you need for the next one. And so, yeah, when you say the media and how that uh, drives what people are willing to be accepting and tolerant of, um, it's, it's, it infiltrates at every level. Our, our schools are just, there's so much effort and emphasis placed on appropriate behavior there that they're not even educating kids. Uh, or when it comes to a choice between the two, education goes and, and a focus on behaving well or behaving correctly is, is what takes over. And so I think there's a lot of grounds to be, for us to be doing a lot of work sort of just pushing back against that, against that culture and saying, you know, these people that we work with have a right and we're going to stand in front of them and say, this is how this ought to be done for them. So on the other hand, somebody like, you know, someone who's learning to speak late or, or is delayed in some way, if you're not focused on their behavior in terms of how it's irritating to someone, um, or bothersome, then what you'll what you'd be more likely to see is sort of what their skill deficits are and what they struggle with, what they have trouble with learning, what where they have trouble learning. And if you're paying attention to a kid that way, I don't think you'd end up so much in a situation where you're failing to give services quickly enough. I think you'd more likely end up in a situation where you've got uh, more supportive people carefully observing and helping. So do you, jumping over another question would you think that's the biggest concern in their field that people just I don't know people just want to take charge and take care of things that irritate them do you think that would be the biggest concern in their field in some way yeah I think that is a big concern in our field because I think that's been well it's definitely been a strong tradition in our field you know like those old group homes they did good work but a lot one of the things that they did a lot of was um, incorporate coercion into their behavior management plans, and if you like, you read those old articles. You see where they were descri- they were defining their target behaviors in terms of behaviors to get rid of and reduce, and 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 it had things to do with like speaking disrespect disrespectfully, which is such a subjective behavior to try and measure or, or consecrate. I find so much more value in reinforcing what a kid is saying, reinforcing speaking to me, and then shaping what they say through, you know, differential delivery of response, respectful, dignified response to what they're saying. When I, I raised my kids, I, I didn't tell, you know, I was in the Navy. I, I cuss like a sailor. So when I, I couldn't really expect my kids to, you know, censor out of their speech certain words. So I had two rules. I didn't want them to, to have a, a, a small vocabulary for any reason, whether it be too much swearing or something else, or you know, too much South Park, but also wanted them to respect other people. So my very religious family, when they spend time with them to, you know, in, in, in concern of the in consideration for them, they don't use those words. So I remember when my daughter was about five years old and I was explaining this to her, and she said, what words, do, what words are those? 
And I started listing a few of them, and she goes, oh, oh, the ones that Grandma doesn't like. I said, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) Smart girl. There you go. There's your measure. There's your marker. And approaching it that way, I don't have to come up with any kind of behavior management plan or, or disciplinary device. I just have to say to my kids, hey, can you do this for me? And they say yes. And they work towards it, and they, and they try. That's a good example of how you apply AB, ABA in everyday life. So can you come up with one that's more recent, how you apply ABA in everyday life? Yeah. Well, just that ap- approach to shaping and teaching, I guess. My daughter is 15 days old. <laughs> my new, my newest daughter. I'm looking forward to just seeing how she learns and how she, you know, like when my oldest kids were that age and that little and, and they started to speak, it was fun to listen to the different ways that they mispronounced words and, and how they learned to correct them over time. And so, yeah, I'm just watching this, this little one learn to feed, learn to, to nurse, learn to tell us when she has a problem and, you know, learn to tell the difference from when she gets out of sorts and just can't calm down. And I scared the hiccups out of her yesterday by saying she- boo. <laughs> I wasn't to replicate that during the next round of hip- hiccups. So I don't know really what caused that. Well, she's shaping your behavior too. So yeah, but just yeah. But I, I, the other thing I wanted to say about the, the the biggest concern in the field is just the thing the thing that we we know of is radical behaviorism. That's you know kind of the, the the sense that what what Skinner was applying in in verbal behavior was a behavioral analysis to to private events and operating under the assumption of. Uh, uh, uniformity that you know processes that we haven't discovered or been able to observe yet will probably ob- operate the same way that the the phenomena operate that we have observed and that we do do know and applying behavior analysis that way is is kind of how it's it's led me around to to focusing on schedules of reinforcement as an alternative to an approach that seeks to rep- suppress behavior that is undesirable and as we get broader as a field and further away from those radical behaviorist roots and sort of where that all came from, the work of Todd Risley and Don Baer and, and those who, you know, were kind of old hippies, I guess, in, in, in one sense, just that people who who are becoming behavior analysts are less likely to have that part of the education that says there can be a different way to do these things because we're behaving organisms. And, you know, like Skinner, when he did his work, he did his work by shaping behavior with positive reinforcement. He he didn't have to run into it or he never ran into a problem where he didn't know how to teach an animal something. So he beat the hell out of it until it until it complied. He fu- He figured it out. And the concern, I guess, is as the field grows that that those philosophical roots are lost and what ten, what starts to grow in our newer behavior analysts are the roots that come more traditionally from education where you know the well-being of the individual child is not necessarily the priority um, it's something that has to be fought for on a case-by-case basis um, and behavior analysts could do a lot of help there they could do a lot of uh, changing things there by developing robust positive reinforcement based uh, shaping programs that build new behavior out of nothing, build behavior that just isn't there and needed needs to be there, and and doing it in fun ways and and starting with the kid, you know where they are exactly. Good one. Really, really need to go back and think of my some of the programs I wrote. I need to make it better. Thank you. Jump over. What would be the biggest misconception of autism or the field you're working in? Um, well, I've recently discovered a. a a few organizations that have been working for a long time to to answer that question actually when i was working in in england with the kid with the kids and adults with autism when i what i started with was i i i wanted to understand what a an autistic person saw when they looked at the world what they felt what they experienced when i worked in my other uh areas foster care the group homes my background as a juvenile nightmare to my parents and teachers really helped and came into play but Without autism, I didn't really have that individual or personal perspective. So I studied, I tried to figure it out, I was, you know, thinking through what, you know, what does blue look like to a blind person? How do they conceive of blue? You know, for someone who has a learning disability, what do they learn? They learn something. They learn how to behave in some way. They learn to engage in these challenging behaviors in very predictable ways. So they're learning in some way. How do they learn those things? And how can I grab those processes and make them learn things that are better for them? That's the approach I've taken to autism. 
And I found that, you know, like the, the diagnostic criteria that we use for autism is really just descriptive categories. They don't apply in all cases. Um, I was just recently watching a video. It was an interview with Paul Andronis. And he was talking about some research. And I think this video is maybe 10 years old. He's, he's talking about some research back then that was being done with kids with autism. And, and they were finding that for for kids who are who are not autistic when they learn things or they do things a certain area of their brain light, lights up in these MRI color maps or whatever um, but kids with autism it goes to different locations of the brain all the time and so to me that really correlates nicely with what I always see is as this very idiosyncratic uh, patterns of behavior that kids with autism learn and by looking closely and getting really close to them and, and trying to see what it is they're seeing that's where I can kind of try to parse out what those individual functions are for their behavior and what it is they're seeing what they're experiencing uh, I was talking to someone recently whose child with autism um, one of the things that they told me about the child is that the child is very social and they, they were saying this as a, they were expressing surprise at this and they're like, but you know, it's, this isn't, you know, kids with autism are not, are not supposed to be very social and they're marveling at that. And then, so that, that's what I would say would probably be the misconception of autism is that because someone has this label that that means they are this, that, and the other thing. When they, when that, when that label is applied and it is said of someone that they have a, a, de a deficit with social skills, well, that may B, or, or what I'm saying is that that is learned by the individual through their individual or their, their their circumstances and and with how you know they've learned to interact with the stimuli in their world. When my daughter was born just recently, uh, I got to see I think what one of the reasons that people blame vaccines for autism. The medical world for someone who doesn't know it very well is very frightening. Through the process of delivering and, and everything, uh, we lost control of so many of the things that we thought we understood were going to happen a certain way. It was it was a really scary process, and and so you have to have a lot of trust in the medical staff and stuff for that to go well. And and for a lot of people, we had really good doctors and medical staff. But for a lot of people, you know, big cities, whatever, bad insurance, poor insurance, they're they're kind of being herded through large scale medical. Uh, operations and not a lot of consideration is given to the fact that well we've got a lot of kids out here in the world with autism that are not diagnosed maybe they shouldn't get the normal herd treatment through the doctor's office because they could need some special consideration through the application of routine medical procedures so if a kid who has autism is affected in such a way that he gets to be about four years old, undiagnosed, and is taken in for regular shots or um, a fever or whatever, you know, it's easy for respondent conditioning in that case to uh, set a kid up to become the kind of individual that goes to those end-of-the-line treatment places that I've worked. Um, I think behavior analysis has a, a big, a good opportunity to take up what Patrick Fryman talks about, getting involved with pediatricians, helping pediatricians understand the behavioral components of what they do with kids and help them find ways that would serve kids well with autism if you don't know that they have or, or could get that diagnosis. It would just, it would improve things for everybody. I really admire his work and uh, trying to get him on board. Maybe I'll send him another email. Hopefully he'll answer me. <laughs> I mean, I know he's a busy man, so... Uh... Anyways, uh, let's talk about some journal articles. Which one is the most important in your mind? Um, I, I really love uh, Gold Diamond's work. The, his blue books just kind of walks you through an experimental approach to behavior. And it was written for, uh, I think, an undergraduate course. Uh, it was in the 60s or 70s, so it's it's kind of maybe not as easy a undergraduate course as, as is <laughs> normal, more normal these days, but, but it's very accessible. I, I loved reading those books. For, for clinical purposes, I like to read a lot in the work of Vollmer, non-contingent reinforcement. Rick Smith has done a lot of good work with identifying and, uh, precursor behavior, precursors to, to self-injurious behavior. I think challenging behavior in general is a is an important area that that we we need a lot more 
uh, a lot better research there, I think, than just application of the standard DR differential reinforcement approaches. And I think there's a lot more that uh, that we could be doing with shaping. I've heard shaping called an art form, and maybe that's why it's not something that is easy to conceive of doing research on, but there, you know, probably is. What is the best advice you have ever received? Best advice? Well, I guess I said it earlier. That Dr. Glenn said that if you uh, if you want to affect change, you got to disrupt the status quo. I don't know if that's really advice she was giving me, but she was pointing out to me if if you want to affect change, there's there's where your focus must lie. Is the status quo? There's something that has to be done about that. And on the other hand, what's the craziest request you ever have? <laughs> the craziest request. I don't know. I don't know what that would be. Justin, uh, Justin Daigle, he said he, uh, someone asked him about ABA and then uh, they tested on uh, turking. He and someone, he taught someone how to turk. So every, he and that other person danced like Miley Cyrus. <laughs> so that's one crazy one. That's funny. That no, was- I, I don't know. I guess mine, in, in terms of something someone's asked, you to teach. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a happy. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is a kid that I worked with who who made a noise that irritated his father, and it was the only verbal vocal sound he'd make. One day, I I was working with him. He was supposed to be in school on on a day that no one else had to be because it was negotiated that way by the parents. And so, his teachers and teachers' aides, we we decided to do a different program that day, and we grabbed the the we, we t- all the toys that were in the room that were normally required to be locked up, we just dumped them all over the floor and played with them all day. And by the end of the day, we'd figured out lots of different reinforcers that we could use with him and had a lot of shaping going on with, with from that noise that he was making into some various different sounds and and applying, and we actually started to get him to use them functionally, different sounds for different types of interactions we were having with him by the end of the day. The, the the parents' request in, in that case was always to to suppress that sound, and I ended up being removed from the case over that issue because <laughs> ah. I was I wouldn't I wouldn't compromise on it, and so yeah, I think the craziest request there for me is get rid of that kid's sound; it irritates me. So often when parents are making these requests, they're they're asking you to get rid of the thing that they need the, the most to start shaping and reinforcing. That is a uh... Different kind of crazy, but I like it. I mean, <laughs> people don't see it that way. Oh, right. Let's wrap it up. So this, right. this one I like to say, that's my little curveball to you. Um, if Imagine you wake up tomorrow and all of your client population, students, people with special needs, whatever it is, but you still have all your knowledge in ABA, what would you do? Uh, find out what people want to learn and start figuring out how to teach it to them really effectively. Efficiently. That's that's really, I think, a, the the use of behavior analysis to control behavior. I think is a is a misguided application. Um, be, behavior analysis is the study of how uh, someone's learning history has unfolded. Conceivably, we could look into that learning history and find out why certain topographies of behavior developed, and then arrange their current environment to to create different patterns of behavior. But I think the the more interesting application of behavior analysis is in uh, creating new behavior, shaping behavior. I think humans are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. One thing, interestingly, I would like to find out is that kids with, who have terminal diseases, if, if they're given robust systems of positive reinforcement and skill development that is a fun and, and dynamic kind of a, approach like the kind that we can create, would it affect the, the status of their illness and would it change that for them? So I think like the operation of our immune system can be uh, nicely supported behaviorally. Interesting. Things like that. I think there's so many different kinds of ways that we can discover our capabilities if we uh, remove the things that, that tend to suppress our growth and creativity. I think the uh, you know, figuring out what what is restraining someone from our natural aptitude and desire to learn and seek out reinforcement is the most, I guess, humanitarian application of behavior analysis. Good one. Any last piece of advice, and how can we find you? Um, well, you find me on Facebook. I 
I tend to, I don't know, I, I don't have a whole lot of time, but I tend to come across people struggling with s- severe SIB especially, and, and I always want to offer advice or just someone to talk through the case. So I guess my advice would be if you have a, a kid who's really hurting themselves, get in touch with me because I've worked with a lot of kids who, are really, who really hurt themselves a lot, and I'm not, you know, able to do everything, but I, I might be able to give some insight from, from what I've experienced. Uh, Dusty Jones on Facebook, and um, do you have a Twitter or a website, anything, that email you can share with us? Uh, I'm working on that. I don't have one yet, but I'd like to get one eventually. Just my email address is, is the best way to get in touch with me. Alrighty, so uh, guys, look for Dusty if you need some serious help, and he will help you. So, thank you so much for your time, Dusty. And I will get these together and put it on iTunes soon. Okay. Thanks again. All, All right. right. This is episode number nine, and hopefully, there will be more to come. And if you guys are on iTunes, please leave me a good review and uh, hopefully more people, more ABA students or people that are interested in ABA could find this. Also, if you have any suggestions or questions, please let me know and I'll make sure that I'll give you guys credit and let's ask uh, BCBA some tough questions. All right, main checked.